0: morning church it is wonderful to be with you today as uh, as we're about to dive into uh, the last sermon on the book of jonah i can't help just saying i want to praise god that philip pierce is back with us today isn't this marvelous it's been a long journey buddy amen amen a lot has been praying yes karen you are a rock star thank you so much for your faithfulness A lot of prayers uh, leading up this day. Philip said, I'm not going to tell you when I'm coming, but I'm I'm excited to do it. It's coming soon, but he said, I don't want to get anybody's hopes up. When I saw you today, I just jumped through the roof. We are so glad you're here. We are better as a body when you're here with us, man. I love you, brother. Um, We are uh, finishing up this series uh, we we call Grace Beyond Borders in the book of Jonah here. Uh, If you're like me, I, I, I grew up reading this story Focused on the fish and focused on Jonah and all that stuff. Again and again, as we've gone through this text, we've seen this is pushing us to a bigger picture. It's not about Jonah. It's not about the fish. It's about God and what God is revealing to us through creation, through his people and all that. So we we ended last week with this picture of like an over-the-top repentance of these horrible, tyrannical, oppressive people of the Ninevites. God had said, if you don't turn around, I mean, he didn't even say it that way, 40 days and something's going to happen here is basically the message of Jonah. And it gets to the end of the last chapter. I've got to tell you where it was before we read our text, because at the end of the last chapter, it says, when God saw the work that they did in turning towards him, God turned back towards them and did not bring the disaster that he had predicted might come. So we're literally picking it up from that sentence. So God says, I'm gracious, I'm not going to blast this city. And if you have your Bibles or your devices that you read on, we'll pick it up in, uh, in the great statement of a prophet from those words. This is uh, the word of the Lord from Jonah chapter one. But Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry. He prayed to the Lord, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That's why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it's better for me to die than to live. Jonah replied, is it right for you to be angry? Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city. And there he made himself a shelter and sat in its shade and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head and to ease his discomfort. Jonah was very happy about the plant. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind. And the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about that plant? It is, he said, and I'm so angry I wish I were dead. The Lord said, you have been concerned about this plant. Though you didn't tend it or make it grow, it sprang up overnight and it died overnight. Should I not have concern for this great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell the right hand from their left, and also many animals? This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Think with me for a moment when you, were a, when you were a kid. You remember those times when you just kind of explored the world? You remember just kind of going around and exploring the way uh, the world was supposed to be? Uh, kind of those bigger pictures of, of maybe it was kind of riding your bike and so you, the world all of a sudden became bigger than your neighborhood. Maybe it was kind of hiking or going somewhere. You know, some of our kids are about to go on track. Maybe it's that kind of picture. I don't know. What, what was it for you? I know for me, and I guess I'm... <laughs> in part because of the 100-degree heat. I'm, I'm drawn back to the, the winters in the hills of Virginia. And I think about my friend, John, who lived right across the street. And we would have these little games we would play, and often on Saturday morning, if we weren't out in the park playing football, we would... We would go into his backyard or in my backyard. His backyard opened up to an area where if you climbed the fence, you went down to the woods and you could explore all back there. And my backyard, if you climbed over the fence, there was a huge park there. And so we would play these, these silly games imagining uh, that, that time had split open and we literally would fall on the ground and we would get up and we would pretend we had no idea where we are. And we would just explore and we would imagine that we were these early frontier people walking and discovering and exploring places. But my favorite thing that we would do is when it would snow and it would snow and we would get up early and we would go and try to find places that nobody had walked yet because we wanted the only footprints in the snow to be ours and we would imagine in our minds did you do things like this we imagined our minds that we were I don't know climbing Everest or we were out in some kind of wasteland and we were someplace that no human foot had ever been you ever have times like that See, I, I come to believe that childhood, one of the themes of childhood is God's intention to expand our vision of the world, to expand our vision of the universe. He wants to stretch us in, in, as we grow up, kind of at, as we're ready for it, our, our world gets bigger and bigger and bigger. That's the intention. Here's the thing that's interesting to me. When I think about life for the rest of our lives, I am reminded how often we need to go back to that lesson as children to see the world in a bigger way. See, here's the reality. From the very beginning, human beings have repeatedly turned inward instead of outward. It's something we've done all along. Let's just give a couple examples. We could do it throughout Scripture. But you start at the very beginning. God created human beings and said, I'm giving you a job to do in the world. He said, be fruitful and multiply. And he says, fill the earth. We've talked about this before. Imagine the places that are empty in the world. God says, go fill it up with your creativity and your giftedness and your goodness. Fill the earth. And almost immediately, human beings turn from that global vision and calling of God turned inward to say no we're going to rebel against God we're going to try to do it our way we're going to focus on ourselves and then there's this crazy story but you understand part of this story is about them turning upside down the vision of God they build this tower called the tower of Babel why God says fill the earth go to the empty places no they said no we're going to build this tower to the sky we're going to stop right here and we're going to make a name for ourselves instead of a name for our God as we spread out the world you see we turned inward from the very beginning or think about Israel God called Israel all the way back from the seeds of Abraham when he said I'm going to bless you in order to be a blessing to what all nations And then in the Sinai covenant with Israel, God says, you are going to be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. You're going to function as a nation, as priests to the world. You're supposed to help the world come connect with me. And what did Israel do? Almost from the beginning, they turned inward and focused on being the chosen people. And they became exclusive instead of outwardly focused. That happened from the beginning. We give example after example in Scripture. I wish I could say it's different in the church. But you know throughout the history of the church, we can struggle with seasons and times when we turn inward. God says, I'm commissioning you to go and make disciples, apprentices, students of Jesus of all nations, baptizing, teaching, instructing, and training. The world is intended to be the place where you bless and you bring the giftedness of God. And so often we can turn into a country club mentality or the way I heard a friend of mine put it, he said we do drawbridge evangelism. you heard of that before? right? We make this a safe place, and so we'll build up a fortress and a wall, and we'll have barriers around us, and every now and then, we'll let the drawbridge down, and we'll get a couple people in, and we'll let a couple people out, but for the most part, we, we stay walled up in our safe, secure places. Throughout human history... There has been this move to turn inward and God continually says, no, I want to take you back to that childhood exploration where I'm expanding your vision of the world. I believe the book of Jonah is here in large part for that purpose, to expand our vision of the grace and the wonder and the power of God. And that will be not just helpful for our purpose in the world, I think it will also be helpful for our joy and our experience of the wonder of the God that he has created us to connect with. So let's walk through the story here and see how how is it that God can help move us from that navel-gazing kind of posture into restoring our vision for the world? What you see at the beginning of the text is Jonah's impaired vision. And you see it really clear because he has this really strange complaint. Have you noticed this? A really strange complaint. He He is hot with anger. That's literally what the Hebrew says. He is hot with anger. In fact, we'll talk about this more in a moment. It literally says in the Hebrew, he was displeased with a great displeasure. (laughs) The word great is throughout the book of Jonah. It comes up again and again. Again, we'll talk about that more, but he was displeased with a great displeasure. He's angry. He's furious. Why? Are you ready for his great complaint to God? God, I knew you were gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. (laughs) That's his complaint to God. By the way, he didn't make those words up. Did you know that? Uh, This is one of two, really, there's there's several, but you could almost call them creeds of the Old Testament. So short, pithy statements of belief about the nature of our God. Obviously, the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. That's that's one. But here's another one. You find it in places like this glorious Psalm, Psalm 103, verse 8. Word for word. Lord is compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, bounding in love. Uh, but the central place that you see this is all the way back in that foundational story of the book of Exodus. Remember, God has relented there too. He has given grace to his people who ran away from him with the golden calf, and he rewrites the tablets of his wedding vows of covenant. Moses asked to see the glory of God, and then As he's about to get the new tablets, this is what it says in Exodus 34, verse 6. The Lord passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving the wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. And so there's this weird mix where it says, God shows his love... To a thousand generations, it says it here and elsewhere. But he doesn't leave the guilty unpunished. Two or three, three or four generations will feel the effects and the consequences of their sin. And I wonder if it's that second part that doesn't get quoted here that is part of what's burning Jonah up. All right, I get you're compassionate and you're gracious and you're slow to anger and you're abounding in love. All that's great. But what about that second part? You don't leave the guilty unpunished. And he is hot with anger to see Nineveh dealt with with the justice of God, and he doesn't see it, and he's angry, and it's so funny, he's like a petulant child, where he gets up, and he goes, and sits down over the city, and he waits, and he watches, pouting, to see if God will actually do what he wanted him to do, and destroy the city, he sits on the east side, judgment usually comes from the east in the Old Testament, he's waiting for that to come. Here's the thing that hits me, when I read this story, I'm reminded of something that a teacher of mine taught me years ago, and the first time he said it, I'm like, no way, that's not true. The longer I live, and the more I read texts like this, and some others I'll refer to in the New Testament as well, the more I believe this to be true. Listen to what this story reveals to us, you ready for this? So many people will talk about struggling with the judgment of God. My teacher put it so powerfully when he said, look, I consistently believe that people have a much harder time with God's grace than they ever do with God's judgment. Especially religious people. have a whole lot harder time with the grace of God than they ever do the judgment of God. Let's listen to Jesus on this. He gives us a couple different stories uh, that unpack that sense, that, that feeling of especially religious people. He tells the story, maybe you've heard it before, he tells the story of a worker that is looking for laborers in his field. And so he goes out early in the morning and he gets some laborers and he hires them for a certain wage and they go and they begin to work, but he realizes the work is too much for them. And then he goes later and he grabs some more and he consigns them, I'll pay you whatever's right, and they go out and work. He does this throughout the day and finally he goes the last hour of the day, one hour left, and he goes and grabs a few more and he says, go work, I'll pay you whatever's fair. Can you imagine the scene of what happens when Jesus tells the parable. Jesus goes out, Mark, uh, Matthew chapter 20, I believe, and, and he says, here's the thing, the landowner goes out with a stack of cash and he's going to pay them all off. And imagine that he starts at the end of the line, he starts paying them. Here's the way to kind of make this sing for you. I want you to imagine that you are trying to get into a, a football game, right? <laughs> imagine what the Aggies have to go through when you got to go pull tickets, right? Sometimes you've got to sit out there for hours and hours and hours and hours. And here's what happens. He goes to the end of the line. He starts handing out the tickets. He starts handing out the cash. And you're watching, and you see that those folks that came just for an hour, they get a day's wage. Wow, that's pretty amazing. This guy's incredibly generous. If he gave them a day's wage for an hour, what's he going to give us? He goes a little bit further, and he gives the other people a day's wage, too. Well, wow, they didn't work as much, but maybe he's super generous. That's cool. I can't wait till he gets to those of us who have been here all day long. And he comes, and all of a sudden, they get a day's wage, too. And it says They're angry. In fact, Jesus in the story has the landowner ask the same kind of question that God asks here to Jonah. He asks Jonah, do you have a right to be angry? What does he say in the New Testament? He says, do you begrudge my generosity? And most of us, if you really sit into the story and don't just kind of make it a quick Bible text, you say, you better believe I do. Man, if I got up, and stayed all night outside waiting in this big old long line, and then all of a sudden the athletic director came out and started passing out tickets in the back, I'd be hot too. Jesus said, often the grace of God is even more provocative than the judgment of God. We'll just quickly mention the other one, but maybe you've heard this before. Jesus tells the story of two sons of a father. We call it the prodigal son. Horrible name of the story. It's about the insanely gracious father. It's not about the son. But anyway, this younger son says, I wish you were dead. Just give me the money I would get if you died. And he goes off and squanders all of it. And he comes back home. You know the story. While he was still a long way off, the father comes and knocks him down, doesn't hear his whole speech, gives him a ring, gives him a coat, Kills the fatted calf, which was reserved for dignitaries or special honored guests. Now listen, if you're honest with yourself, don't you feel for the older brother a little bit if you've heard the story? Older brother's been working there. He's slaving all day long out in the hot sun. Okay, can you imagine the conversation? Okay, dad, let him back. That's cool. Let him pay the stuff back. But the ring and the code and reinstating him as a son and acting, and gosh, here's here's the big thing. He threw a party for him. He threw a party for the sinner. Listen to me. Jesus makes it clear. We spend so much time focusing on the prodigal son. Jesus makes it clear. He told the story for the older brother. Go look at Luke chapter 15, verses 1 and 2. It said when he noticed that the religious leaders were angry because he was eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners, he started telling stories. He was talking to the older Brother, it is often harder to handle the grace of God than it ever is the judgment of God. So what does the Lord do? I think we get a ray of hope here, but let's be really clear. The story does not resolve. If you're waiting for a great, oh, yeah, let's tie it up in that neat bow, and Jodo becomes a hero at the end, he does not. But God gives him some hope because he has what I call a long, intense conversation. (laughs) God has a long and intense conversation back and forth with Jonah. Yeah, it's the next slide. (laughs) Here's the way that this comes out. I can't even remember the number, but when I was studying this out, somebody like counted out the statements in the chapter. And there's a bunch of them. But here's what's interesting. There is precisely the same number of statements Jonah makes to the number of responses that God gives to him. So you picture this? Jonah will say something, God responds. Jonah says something, God responds. Jonah says something, God responds. And here's what I love already. God doesn't give up on his conversation with this crazy prophet. He stays in the conversation with his prophet. And he engages it back and forth. And I believe he's trying to do something in this text. Two things to see here. First of all, notice the breadth of the conversation. Here's a way to put it. Here's a way to think about it. God uses all of creation to get Jonah to care about all of creation. Did you catch that? He used all of creation. We mentioned this in chapter one, but it gets tripled here in chapter four. The weird providence of God. Chapter one, verse 17, it said, The Lord God provided a great fish to swallow Jonah up. How's that for your provisional, provision of God? God provided. The word can also be translated appointed. So God appointed a fish to go swallow him up. Three times the same word happens in this chapter. God provided, first of all, a plant to shelter him because Jonah went out there and it was really hot and he tried to build a shelter, but that shelter didn't really work. More on that in a moment. So God provides a plant for him to give him shelter and shade from it. God provided the shelter. But then it said, God provided or appointed a worm to eat the plant that was the shelter. And then if that were not bad enough, then God provided, appointed in the grace of God, a scorching east wind to beat down on Jonah's hot head. Is this a perfect time to preach this sermon or what? But, But do you see this? God isn't beating up on his prophet. He's using all of the resources of creation to try to get through to his heart. It's a broad conversation, but it's an intense one. Because here's what I believe. That's why I call this heart transplant. I believe God is doing heart surgery here for him. He is trying with Jonah to align Jonah's heart and purpose and passion with God's own heart and purpose. And passion. And he doesn't just do it for him. Listen to me, he does that for us too. He said, Can I get your heart in the same place that my heart is in this text and in this story? Here's a way to think about this. We're gonna do all right, we're gonna do some just old-fashioned Bible study here for a minute. I think it's cool, but if I put you to sleep, I'll wake you up in a second and say, Here's the point. All right. So so follow me on this. A lot of people make a big deal out of Jonah, and this is true, Jonah isn't just a character, he is, but he also represents someone. This happens all the way through the Bible. The last time we talked about this in the book of Exodus. Moses, historical figure, all of that, but he also represents God's way in the world. And Pharaoh, historical character, we have records and all of that, but he didn't even get a name in the Exodus story. Pharaoh is a symbol and representation of the empire and the ways of tyranny and oppression. You get it? So sometimes. The person in the story is also representing someone else, right? Does that make sense? So, most people, and I agree with this, but I'm just offering a different perspective too, so I'd say both and. Most people will read this text, or a lot of times they'll say, okay, what, who is Jonah representing in the story? Well, Jonah is in some ways obviously representing Israel, That's typically what we do with this, and I think it's important, Even calling it grace beyond borders is is buying into that a little bit. So let's just talk about that for a second. Jonah represents Israel in that internal navel-gazing. God needs to be the people, the God of Israel, not a God of the world kind of stuff. Does that make sense? So you can see this flavors even in the Old Testament of them getting more and more internal. And God wants to stretch them back out to their purpose of Abraham to bless all nations. Does that make sense? Now here's the thing. What if he doesn't just represent Israel, though? Let's think about it this way. There are two characters. Major characters in the story in chapter 3 and chapter 4 who have the same two major things happen. First of all, they face a calamity that is impending from God, number one. And secondly, they do something themselves about it. Got me? Ready this? Calamity, and then they do something about it, right? Jonah, obviously, is one of those people, right? So he's got the heat coming down of God, the calamity, the heat of God is coming in. And what does he do? he builds a shelter. Let's think about this. These things represent something. He builds a shelter for himself. The problem is that doesn't really work. People go into spill a lot of ink talking about why this case stuff dried up, the wind blew it away, whatever the case may be. So it doesn't work completely. It's inadequate. Who else in chapter 3 and chapter 4 was facing a calamity and did something about it? The people of Nineveh, the Assyrian empire. They're called they're said, this wind is blowing, the fire of God is coming. And stuff's gonna get turned over. So, what do they do? They build their own repentance. This is so important because often in the stories in scripture, we make heroes out of the repenters, and that's not the point. You hear me? All right, in chapter one, the, sol- the soldiers, the sailors, like cry out to God and they expand their view, and God gets on their list of gods. But let's be real, they're not Yahweh worshipers. And let's be real, in chapter three, the Ninevites repent, repent from the cows to the kings. They repent. But they're not God worshipers. They're pagans. They do what pagans do. They fast and they cry out to God and they do their stuff. And it says, very interestingly, if you've read the New Testament on what it is we are saved by, it says God saw their works. And he relented. So I want you to picture this. Perhaps Jonah doesn't just represent Israel. Perhaps without even knowing it, he represents Nineveh, because this prophet of the people of God actually doesn't even realize that he is exactly as much in desperate need of the grace of God as the people that he wants to die. You hear me? And maybe what the shelter represents that he built, maybe it represents the repentance of the Ninevites. It's a good start. It's doing something, but... Your repentance does not save you. Oh, it's important and it's necessary. We open ourselves to the grace of God. We are not saved by anything we do. And maybe the prophet needed to know that too. Maybe God is saying, do you realize that you are just as much in desperate need of the grace of God as these people are that you want to kill? Here's a way to think about it. I like, again, I mentioned this last time. The BAMA podcast does something cool with this. I want to kind of take it a different way, but they pointed out, like I said before, the word great is all over the book. I even just for fun wrote it down. I just, okay, I want to look through all the greats. Are you ready for it? This is going from beginning to end. There's a great city, great wind, great storm, great fear of the storm, great fear of God, great fish, great city, great city, great people, great people, great displeasure, and great city. Bama podcast said, why is Jonah angry? Why is his heart misaligned with God? Because there's one great that is left off the list that he wished was on the list, and it's a great wrath. It's not there. Now, don't miss me. We got next week, it's going to be kind of a coda appendix to this series. God does bring judgment, and God fixes messes. But hear me, the greatness of this text is not the greatness of God's wrath. Again, I go back to the thing he quoted, but he didn't get. A thousand generations get the love and the compassion of God. Three or four generations, there is an impact, consequences, the sins for our life. But the greatness is not his wrath, the greatness is his grace. But here's what's interesting to me. Again, I wrote this down. There's two places in chapter 4, and then we'll step back and see the big picture. I know, Bible study stuff, this is fun to me. Verse 1, Jodah was displeased with a great displeasure over the grace of God. Did you know there's one more thing? It's great there. It says in verse 6, listen, if you remember what the shelter represents, the plant represents that God made. Jonah was glad with a great gladness over the plant. What is God trying to do? Listen, I think all of this is intended to move us to an absolute celebration of the grace of God. What does he notice? Here at the beginning, Jonah is displeased and angry with a great displeasure. But God is saying, I I want you to get to a place where you're just as excited about the grace that I'm sending on the Ninevites as you are about this stupid plant that I put over your head. Do you see the shelter is the grace of God? Jonah's shelter that he built is our own works and the best we can do. The plant, God's created shelter is his grace. And listen to me, nothing can rescue us, save us, or sustain us outside of the grace of God. And that ought to delight us. Passionately. God says, I want to realign your hearts. Go back to those two stories we mentioned. Can Can you think about that? Part of the point he was trying to make... When he's focusing on the older son, doesn't mean, hey, we all get something out of it being prodigals in our lives, right? But that's the point. What he's saying is, the older son was just as lost as the younger one was. He was just as much in need of the rescue because he was slaving for the father outside of a relationship with him. God wanted him in the dance and in the party and in the house, and he was outside slaving for the father. He was lost too. He didn't know it. And and what about about that crazy story about the line? Credit this to a a book I read all the way back in seminary. It just popped off the page to me. Think about this. Again, go back to pulling tickets, right? Imagine that you are actually rushing there to get there at the end of the possibility of trying to go and get a ticket. You're running, you're sweating, or whatever, just to get there, but you haven't had to sit out there all night. You haven't sat there through the heat of the day. Here's a great line to think about. When you hear celebration in the line, it all depends on where you think you're standing. Our reaction to the story of the workers in the field all depends on where we think we stand. And when we read the story, and it seems really unfair to us, it's because we think we're in the front of the line. And Jesus keeps telling Jonah and the prodigal son and the workers of the field to tell us we're always in the back of the line. Not because God is mean and over a cop, because he is that amazing and glorious and incredible. And it takes the rescue of God for any of us to get in. God says, I want to realign your heart to recognize that we should be celebrating now. How does the book end? God says, you were all fired up with a great displeasure about this stinking, you know, about the, about the Ninevites and them getting grace, but you're all fired up with a great celebration and joy about this crazy plant you didn't do anything about. Then he says these incredible words about one of the most oppressive and tyrannical people on the face of the earth. He said, shouldn't I be concerned about this great city? 120,000 people don't know the right from the left. Dan mentioned last week, that reminds him of Children, you bet, children don't know they're right from the left. I think it's also symbolic to say, spiritually speaking, none of them did. So God tells the story of Jonah to say, yes, Jonah, I want you to know that I am as gracious and compassionate to people who do not know the damage they're doing in the world. They don't know what they're missing. And all of a sudden, when I hear it that way, I remember the heart of Jesus Christ who said something similar. Do you remember that? He's hanging on the cross, and he looks at the very people who are killing him. What does he say? No, Jonah doesn't wrap up the story, but Jesus does, because he looks at these people that are brutalizing him, and he says, Father, forgive them. They do not know their right hand from their left. And I have grace on them. And God says, I am going to spend all of creation and all of the life of my son, and all of my communal work to help us align our heart with the God who gives grace to a thousand generations, and to be part of a community that does that. Is it possible to live like that? Is it really possible to actually not just hear the story, oh cool, isn't that interesting? Is it possible to make this a community that shapes us more and more into the people whose hearts are aligned to the grace of God? I can't do it. I can't build that shelter. But God can build the plant. I was taught this by a guy that I got a chance to meet at Lipscomb when he came to speak. His name is Miroslav Volf. How's that for a great name? He is a Christian theologian. Most of his writings really focus on the realm of forgiveness And grace but he's not some abstract uh, theologian that's kind of distant and disconnected and ivory tower and all of those cliches because he's lived it I, i jotted down some of the the facts of his story that he talked about some years ago when he was at lipscomb his father here's the thing he was from former yugoslavia right so you know there are literally camps there are ninevites and israelites and they'll both argue about which one's which They fought and they destroyed each other's lives. His father was killed in a concentration camp there. He was beat up as a young man for playing in a Christian band. Look at my friend that I play with sometimes. He was beat up and persecuted for playing in a band that played Christian music. So this is not a guy that's just kind of offhandedly talking about forgiveness. Do you hear me? He's had to walk out what forgiveness looks like and the grace of God looks like for the Ninevites of the world in some of the most excruciating situations. He told a story, and um, he was there at Lipsky University. He talked about this. His five-year-old brother died. He was riding a a cart uh, going into the market, but he died. It wasn't because of the cart. He died because of the persecution and the negligence of the soldiers that were there. And he came home and he asked his mother, his God-fearing, long conversation with Jesus' mother, what do we do about this? In addition to saying we grieve and we lament and we cry out to God, she said, we forgive. Here are her words. We forgive because God's word teaches us to forgive one another as God in Christ has forgiven you, Ephesians 4. And then he said four of the most powerful words I've ever heard for someone in his situation. She said, we forgive, and so we did. We forgave. Those who killed his father, killed his little brother. And this is what he writes in a book. If you wrestle with forgiveness, he writes a powerful book called Free of Charge. Forgiveness and Grace. This is what he writes. My mother describes the experience as a forgiveness which caused me a great deal of pain. Forgiveness is not easy, and it is not cheap. Caused me a great deal of pain. She talked about the battle. She said, a persistent, shrill, inner voice kept repeating angrily, he is guilty, he should pay. He is guilty, he should pay. Do you hear Jonah's voice? But then she said a gentle, quiet voice, barely audible to the ear of the soul. Would respond. Forgive one another. As God in Christ. Has forgiven you. And she said that quiet voice. Won out. Is it possible. To be so saturated. In the story. Of a gracious God. That we recognize right where we stand in the line. Right where we are as the sons. And the daughters. Of the king of kings. So much that the quiet voice of the Holy Spirit of God saying, I love this broken world, wins out over the voice that says, but they deserve all of this other stuff. I don't know about you, but I want to be that community that can shape people so that generations can say, it was hard, but we did. Father God, we come to you in absolute delight and celebration that you are compassionate and gracious, God, slow to anger and abounding in never-ending steadfast love. We depend on that for our very lives. Help us always to hold on to that in such a way that we don't just receive it and turn inward, but we pour it out extravagantly to everybody. Father, in even those hard places in our lives, those people that we find difficult to forgive. Father, you know there are still consequences. And that doesn't mean we open ourselves up to abuse or anything like that. But help us, Father, to be people who hold records lightly and turn all things over into your gracious and loving hands. And we pray all this in the name of the only one that makes any of this possible, our plant, our shelter, our Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray.